the middle of a series that we're calling Therefore Everyone. And actually, this is a continuation of a series that we actually did a little bit ago that was called For Everyone. And in For Everyone and Therefore Everyone, we're taking a look at the book of Romans, a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Rome. And what we learned in our first series was we learned this rich explanation of the gospel, this rich explanation of the good news of Jesus. And what we learned is that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Therefore, since the gospel is for everyone, everyone needs to respond to the gospel. And our question is, how will we respond? And so today we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 12. And Charles started that a few weeks ago. And what he did was he started off and the verse that starts off the whole chapter says, therefore, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing God. Therefore, there's the therefore. You've heard all of this stuff. Now here's how you respond. You respond with your life as a living sacrifice. And so he went over that. And then last week, Jason kind of continued that concept. We're talking about how uh, we are equipped with gifts and how we need to live out a life of unity. And so today we're going to continue on in the chapter as we look at this response to the gospel. Therefore, here's the gospel. Therefore, live this way. And today we're going to look at how to live a life filled with real love. Real love. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 12. And we're going to be reading starting at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this guy Paul, he wrote all these different letters to different churches. This is a letter that he wrote to a church in Rome. And, and actually he wrote another letter to a church in the city of Corinth. And when he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he did something similar to what he does in Romans chapter 12. In that letter in 1 Corinthians, he outlines spiritual gifts. He outlines the way that we are equipped to live out the life of a church, to live out the life of following Jesus. And then immediately after that, he follows it up with a passage about love. And what he says in there is, you can have all of these gifts, you can have all of these skills, you can have all of this stuff, but if you don't have love, then you're just a clanging symbol. If you don't have love, you're just making noise. And so in Romans 12, he does the same thing. He outlines this call to unity, and he outlines these, these, these descriptions of gifts, and then what he does is he makes the focus about love again. 
He says, don't lose sight of this. This is important. You need to love. And so what happens in this section is that Paul gives these exhortations, these commands, and actually there are 30 commands in the passage we just read. 30 commands. And we're going to spend five minutes on each of the commands. But we obviously can't do that. We obviously can't even go over each command in itself. What we're going to do is we're going to take a big umbrella view, a bird's eye view, and take some themes out of those commands and see what's going on. Because all of those commands, all of those things that were told to us by Paul, all the things that he is saying boldly in rapid fire have a foundation. And the foundation that kind of holds them all together is the first command. The first command. The first command that Paul gives is this. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. Let me explain that to you in a different way. Because if we were reading this letter when Paul had written it, or if we were reading in the original language that he read, uh, wrote it, we would have read something more like this. Love must be without hypocrisy. Love must be without hypocrisy. What Paul is calling us to is to love with a real love, to love with a genuine love, to love with a love that does not have hypocrisy. And from that foundation, he fires off these commands, one right after another, boom, boom, boom. And in each of these commands, we get a characteristic of that real love. In each of the commands, we get a characteristic of this love without hypocrisy. And so the first characteristic, again, the first characteristic is that it needs to be real. It needs to be sincere. It needs to be authentic. It needs to be without hypocrisy. But as we read on, here's what we learn. Here are some of the themes that we can pick out from the commands. We learn that love is discerning. It is filled with devotion. It honors. It is enthusiastic. It is patient. It's joyful. It is generous. It practices hospitality. It is filled with goodwill. It is sympathetic. It is harmonious. And it is humble. This is real love. This is the way we are to live. This is the way the church is meant to be. When people think of the church, when people who are not a part of the church think of the church, what should come to mind should be this description. What should come to mind is this description of real love. And my question is, when people think of the church, when people think of Calvary Church, is this what they think? Is this what they think? When the church is mentioned to someone who is not part of it, who is far from Jesus, who doesn't even believe in God, when the word church is mentioned, is this the thought? Is this the description that comes to mind? Because here's the crazy part. Here's the crazy part. 
This description that was described, this, these characteristics, these commands, were all given in a certain setting. Once we get to those verses of 10, 11, and 12, Paul begins to use this word that all of you know. It doesn't matter if this is the first time you've been to church. It doesn't matter if this is the first time you've actually uh, looked at the Bible. You know this word. You see, it's the word where we get Philadelphia from. It's the word where we get Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. You ever wonder why, we, why Philadelphia is called that? The city of brotherly love? Because you didn't earn it. <laughs> I've met Flyers fans. <laughs> brotherly love is what Philadelphia actually means. What Paul is saying is the love he is calling for is in the setting of a family. A family. This is the love that needs to be present in a family. He is calling the church to live as a family, to live out this real love. And he provides the characteristics of that love in these commands. But what we learn as we read these commands, that in order to live them out, there is a cost. There is a very real cost. As we look at the characteristics, we see that there is a cost to this love. Look at the statements that are being said. Bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And, and, and it's easy to look at those words and kind of glaze over them and kind of detach ourselves from them. And we kind of assign that to a global position. Yeah, the church needs to to love their enemies, those who persecute the church. And we think of it in a global sense, and we think back and like, yeah, the, the, the church in Rome, they faced persecution. They needed to do that. Or there are people around the world, and we need to pray for those who persecute us. And we kind of detach ourselves and make that persecutor a distant thing when we read these, and we're missing something when we do that. We're missing something if we do that. We lose the heart of that. You see, most of the commentaries that I read split apart these two sections when they were describing the setting. And here's the common theme that I read. This first part, rejoice with people who rejoice, mourn with people who mourn, that's all under Philadelphia. That's all the family. Live this love in this context of family. But this other part, the persecutors, obviously, obviously Paul is talking about those outside of the church, those who are persecuting outside of the church. This is the lovey family. This is related to the enemies. And I'm like, whoa, I don't understand how you can say that. Because the first call to love your enemies is actually in that whole section of Philadelphia. If we just simply look at it as just those who are outside the church persecuting, we're missing something. It is meant to be more than that. If we look back at what Jason talked about last week when he talked about church unity, we cannot look at this passage and say that this pain, this fracturedness is, is, is only related to people outside of the church. Paul was writing to a fractured 
church. He was writing to a church that there were very real tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles. There were very real hurts. There was very real pain. There was very real bitterness. There was the talk amongst themselves. There was gossip amongst themselves. It was a fractured church that he was writing to. And if we understand that this loving of enemies includes the family love that we just read about, then it takes it to a whole different level. It takes it to a whole different level. Jeremiah Link is a good friend of mine. He attends our Quakertown campus. Much love to you, bro. Some of you may have seen him before. He preached at the end of December. He was the math teacher that did like the gospel according to math, whatever. (laughs) Math teachers need the gospel. And I love Jeremiah. We went out for lunch on Thursday and we went to Vietnam Cafe, which is awesome. If you've never been there, you need to go there. And as we're eating, we're just kind of talking about life. We're talking about um, just family. And then we start talking about the Bible. And I started talking about what I was studying for this week. And he started talking about Joseph, something that he had just preached on recently. And we start talking about loving our enemies. And he said something to me. He goes, Bro, you know what often happens? He said, what often happens is this, our greatest enemies started out as those closest to us. Our greatest enemies started out as family. Oftentimes, our greatest enemies were our family, were those close to us. He's saying, we're called to love. He goes, bro, that's hard to do. But he says it has to happen. It has to happen. Because we cannot possibly hope to reach others with love if we do not love each other. Then he said this to me. He was talking about love. He was talking especially about loving our enemies. He was especially, especially talking about loving our enemies who were our family, who are our family, who are those close to us. And he said this. It has to start with the people we are closest to in order to be genuine and to reach the people we are furthest from. He says, he said to me, it has to start with the people we are closest to in order for it to be genuine and to reach the people we are furthest from. In order for the body of Christ to reach those who are far from Jesus, we have to love each other with the love of Jesus. There is no other way. We have to love this way. But wait, 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 wait. There's the verse at the end of that passage, right? I'm like, I can love, I can love my enemies as long as burning coals go on their head. I'm good with that. I'll love as long as there is a barbecue happening up top. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm asking for. That singe of that smell of singeing meat, that's not a burger. I'm okay with that, okay? And that verse is kind of awkward. I gotta admit, like when I read that verse, I was like, that's weird. I don't know, I can't kind of reconcile it with the rest. In fact, sometimes I would read that passage if I'm reading to someone else, and I'll stop before I get to that, because I'm like, I don't want to try to explain this one. I don't know what Paul was doing here. It's because I didn't understand that verse. 
And if I did, I would understand that this is intense love. What Paul is doing when he says that is he's quoting from Proverbs. He's quoting from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. And as I was reading different commentaries, I learned something about this. During that time, during the time when this proverb was written, there was an ancient Egyptian tradition that occurred. And what happened was that when someone was penitent, when someone wanted to repent of something, they would put coals on their head and walk a symbolic walk. And what was going on is that this was a picture of this penance. It was a picture of this radical change of mind. What Paul is saying is that when we love others, we are pointing them towards repentance. The colds were never meant to hurt. They were meant to heal. The coals were never meant to hurt. They were meant to heal. So what does that look like? I mean, do we just kind of ignore? Do we just ignore what happens? Do we just pretend like nothing happened? Do we just kind of stuff it up and bottle inside and there's no consequences, nothing? Uh, I don't think that's what's happening. I'm not saying that. But here's what I'm saying. What are you focusing on during that process? What are you focusing on when someone has wronged you? Are you focusing on that person and what needs to happen to them? Or are you looking inside and looking at your own heart? Because when someone wrongs me, I need to first look inside and look at my own heart and examine where my heart is. Is it filled with real, authentic love without a hypocrisy? Or is it just filled with vengeance? Growing up, I used to go over to my Aunt Betty's house. And I loved going to her house because she had three sons, Alex, Benji, and Jesse, and they were my cousins, and they were just like my older brothers, basically. I didn't have a brother. They were, they were basically the brothers in my life, and I loved going over there. And my aunt, just so you know, I need you to know this, this is important, was 4'10", and scary. She was tough. She was tough. When I, when I got older in high school, she said, I don't care how big you get, I'll stand on a chair. I'll stand on a chair if I have to. She had like these, 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 these eyes that, they were scary. And one time when I was six years old, apparently I did something wrong. <laughs> you see, she used to have in the kitchen a big jar of change. She put all her quarters in it, dimes, nickels, all of that. Apparently, I stole it. It didn't take long for her to figure out who stole it. I don't remember stealing it. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't remember much about this. I was only six, okay? I don't remember much about what happened. I only remember two things. 
I remember being scared. I remember walking into the kitchen, being scared, knowing I was in trouble, I was embarrassed, and I was like, I don't know what she's going to do, but there are the eyes. But what I really remember is this. When I walked into the kitchen, she walked over to me, and she gave me a big hug, and she looked me in the eyes and said, I love you. Don't you ever forget that. I don't remember the consequence. I'm going to guarantee I had one. I don't remember it. I don't remember anything. The only thing I remember is the heart of love my aunt showed to me when I wronged her. I still remember it today. Are we loving our enemies with a true love? So Paul is telling us that we need to love with this real love. And he gives this list of commands. And in this list of commands, he gives a characteristic of that love. And as we read those characteristics, we understand that there is a very real cost. It is very hard to live out this love. And then we kind of wonder, where do you come up with this? Where did you get this list? Did you kind of just come up with it on your own? Where is Paul getting this idea from? <clears throat> and then we realize that the love that Paul is describing is simply the love of Christ. It's simply the love of Christ. As we listen to Paul's words, as we listen to what he is writing down, we hear echoes of the words of Jesus, especially echoes of the words that he spoke during the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon when he taught a bunch of people as he was standing on a mountain. But not only do we hear echoes of Jesus' words, we see reflections of Jesus' life. The love you read in this passage, the love we read, it's a picture of Jesus' love. Don't forget how this passage starts at the beginning. At the beginning of the chapter, in view of God's mercy, the gospel is this beautiful picture of God's mercy to people who do not deserve it, who are inexcusable, people like me, who don't deserve that mercy. In view of that, in view of the beauty of the gospel, in the view of this amazing love, here is your response. Love like Jesus loved. Love like Jesus loved. That's intense. And I'm going to remind you of that love by pointing you to a moment when Jesus was on the cross, when he was dying for our sins. As he is on that cross with his arms stretched out, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's the most amazing thing about that statement 
is where and when it is said. Jesus doesn't wait to come out of the tomb alive to say that statement. He doesn't wait until he's off the cross. He doesn't wait until they apologize. He doesn't even wait until they stop doing all the stuff that they're doing. In the midst of the agonizing pain, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of all of this stuff where they're mocking him and spinning on him and and just, just making fun of him, in the midst of all of this darkness, he stretches out his arms and he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is the love that was shown to me, and that is the love that was shown to you. And here's the deal. If I claim that love for myself, if I somehow understand that that love was shown to me, that while I was a sinner, while I was an enemy of God, Christ died for me. If I claim that truth for me, if I claim that grace and mercy for myself, but I do not love my enemy, I am spitting in the face of the one who loved me. Because the one that I refuse to love, the one that I continue to have the heart of vengeance for, is the one who God loved furiously, is the one whom God sent his son for, is the one whom Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. If I cannot love my enemy, I have no right to claim the love that Jesus showed me. Here's the truth. It's almost impossible to do. Actually, it is impossible to do. If I were to do it on my own strength, if I were to somehow figure out some sort of way that I could do that on my own, I would fail. Guys, I've talked to you. I've talked to many of you in this room. Many of you have been hurt ridiculously. Many of you have been betrayed Many of you have experienced real pain, real heartache, real just mess. I know it. For me to just tell you, you need to love. Go and love. It's so hollow. Because it's not fair for me to just say that to you and say, go do it. Because this wasn't meant to be a checklist of boxes that we kind of just check off. We can't do it on our own. This was meant to be evidence of not the work that we do, but the work that's being done in us. In Romans chapter 15, verse 15, it says this, Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. There are bold statements that he's making in chapter 12. I can't help but think that Paul was thinking about what he wrote in chapter 12. I wrote to you boldly because of the grace, again, focusing on grace, focusing on the mercy, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, a sacrifice pleasing to God. How? Sanctified. By the Holy Spirit. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is only through his transformational power that we can hope to love with this real love. It is only through that work. 
So how do we love? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it takes us to boldly step out and do it. To boldly step out and love with that real love. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. There's 30 commands in that passage. 30. Pick one this week. But wait. Pick the one you don't want to pick. Don't pick the easy one. I'll rejoice with those who rejoice. Pick the one you don't want to pick. Pick the one that makes you like, oh. And here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to do it this week. I want you to pray for God to give you the strength to do it this week. And then I want you to go do it. Pick one. You got 30 to pick from. Well, I guess not. You got 29. Paul tells us to love with sincere love, to love without hypocrisy, to love with a real love. And he gives us the characteristics and cost of that love. And the truth is the love that he is calling us to do is simply the love of Christ. Will we love with that love? Will we love with that love? Because here's the deal. For those around us, for our neighbors, our family members, our coworkers, anyone around us who doesn't know Jesus, here's the deal. They're not judging me. They're not judging you. They're not judging us based on our intellectual knowledge of the Bible. They're not judging us on how many scriptures we can memorize and quote. They're judging us on how real and authentic our love is. If we have a love that is filled with hypocrisy, that is the love they will see of Jesus. Our love needs to be real. It needs to be without hypocrisy so that others can see the real love of Jesus and that lives will be changed. So what's your heart beating with today? Is it beating with bitterness, resentment, anger? Then let it go. Bring it to the foot of the cross and let it go. And let your heart beat with the love that you were loved with. Let's love like Jesus.